You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A court orders NSO Group to hand over their source code. The Five Eyes reiterate warnings about Avanti products. Researchers demonstrate a generative AI worm. Fulton County calls Lockbit's bluff. SMS codes went unprotected online. Golden Corral serves up a buffet of personal data. Ransom demands continue to climb. A U.S. senator calls on the FTC to investigate auto industry privacy practices. Dressing up data centers... Our guest is Dominic Rizzo, founder and director of Open Titan and CEO at Zero Risk, discussing the first open source silicon project to reach commercial availability. And cops can't keep their suspects straight. It's Friday, March 1st, 2024, the first day of Women's History Month. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is your CyberWire Intel Briefing. A U.S. court has mandated Israeli firm NSO Group, creators of the Pegasus spyware, to hand over its source code to WhatsApp. Back in 2019, WhatsApp accused NSO of targeting 1,400 of its users with Pegasus, which allows for extensive surveillance without detection. Despite NSO's appeal citing U.S. and Israeli restrictions, the court ordered the disclosure of all spyware active from April 29, 2018 to May of 2020, excluding client identities or server details. This ruling marks a significant legal win for the Meta-owned app. NSO Group has been widely criticized for enabling the surveillance of activists and journalists worldwide and was blacklisted by the Biden administration in 2021. The administration has also introduced global visa restrictions to combat the misuse of spyware like Pegasus, reflecting concerns over national security and privacy. The Five Eyes intelligence agencies from Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US have issued an urgent warning about the ongoing exploitation of vulnerabilities in Avanti products. Cyber threat actors are targeting Avanti Connect Secure and Avanti Policy Secure gateways. 
The vulnerabilities rated from high to critical could allow attackers to bypass authentication, craft malicious requests, and execute commands with elevated privileges. The advisory also highlights that Avanti's compromised detection tools failed to detect breaches, advising users to assume compromised credentials, hunt for malicious activity, and follow Avanti's patching guidance. Observers have noted that these ongoing notifications from intelligence organizations amount to an indirect recommendation to discontinue use of the affected Avanti products. Meanwhile, CISA has added a Microsoft streaming service vulnerability with a CVSS score of 8.4 to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog due to its exploitation of system privileges, Discovered by Thomas Imbert from Synactive through the Trend Micro Zero Day initiative, this flaw has seen widespread abuse following the release of proof-of-concept code. Federal agencies must remediate the vulnerability by March 21, 2024, and CISA recommends private entities also address this issue in their systems. Researchers have demonstrated a novel cyber threat with the creation of a generative AI worm capable of spreading across AI systems, such as OpenAI's ChatGPT and Google's Gemini. This AI worm, called Morris2, can autonomously propagate from one system to another, stealing data or deploying malware. Developed by Ben Nassi and colleagues at Cornell Tech, Morris 2 can exploit AI email assistance to exfiltrate data from emails and disseminate spam, circumventing some security measures of ChatGPT and Gemini. The exploit utilizes adversarial self-replicating prompts, akin to traditional cyber attack methods, to manipulate AI responses for malicious purposes. The research, which was conducted in controlled settings, underscores the emerging security risks within AI ecosystems, especially as AI applications gain autonomy in performing tasks. The researchers have reported their findings to Google and OpenAI. The Lockbit Ransomware Group claimed online that Fulton County, Georgia, had paid a ransom to prevent the publication of stolen data. County officials insist no payment was made. Now, security experts suggest Lockbit was bluffing, likely having lost the data during recent U.S. and U.K. law enforcement seizures of the gang's servers. Originally threatening to release Fulton County's data, Lockbit removed the county from its victim list without clear explanation. The FBI and U.K.'s National Crime Agency had earlier disrupted Lockbit's operations, casting doubt on the group's capabilities. Despite re-emerging with new domains, Lockbit's credibility is questioned, with analysts suggesting this episode could signify the end of the Lockbit brand, pointing to possible desperation or an attempt to maintain affiliate confidence after significant operational setbacks. YX International, an Asian tech company providing global SMS routing services, inadvertently exposed a database without password protection, revealing one-time security codes and password reset links for users' accounts on platforms like Facebook, Google, and TikTok. Discovered by security researcher Anurag Sen, the database contains sensitive information, including two-factor authentication codes and internal email addresses. 
Despite the inherent security benefits of two-factor authentication, SMS-based codes can be less secure, susceptible to interception or accidental exposure. The database, with records dating back to July of 2023, was secured after TechCrunch alerted YX International, but the company couldn't confirm the duration of the exposure or if unauthorized access occurred. A report from Arctic Wolf reveals a 20% year-over-year increase in median initial ransom demands in 2023, reaching $600,000. Sectors like legal, government, retail, and energy face demands of a million dollars or more. Manufacturing, business services, and education and nonprofits top the victim list. The report underscores cyber criminals' growing aggression exploiting mainly pre-2022 vulnerabilities. Arctic Wolf notes that by focusing on 10 specific vulnerabilities, organizations could significantly enhance cybersecurity. The silver lining is improved organizational resilience, with 71% managing partial recovery from backups, aiding negotiation leverage. Insurance mandates for modern data protection and law enforcement's increasing adeptness at identifying cyber syndicates also contribute to a proactive stance against ransomware. Golden Corral, an American buffet restaurant chain and my father's favorite place in the world to eat out, announced a data breach affecting over 180,000 individuals after a cyber attack in August. Hackers accessed the company's systems between August 11th and 15th, compromising data of current and former employees and their beneficiaries. The breach disrupted corporate operations, prompting notification to federal law enforcement and efforts to enhance security measures. The stolen data includes names, social security numbers, financial and medical information, among others. Golden Corral has begun notifying affected individuals and advises vigilance against identity theft. The breach's details were disclosed in a filing with Maine's Attorney General. Senator Edward Markey criticized major automakers for their vague responses to his questions regarding data privacy practices and has called on FTC Chair Lena Kahn to investigate. Markey's dissatisfaction stems from inadequate transparency on how these companies handle privacy protections, consent for data collection, and data sharing for commercial benefits. Despite automakers claiming to offer consent options to consumers, only one disclosed the consent rate, and most only delete data when legally required. Concerns were also raised about excessive data collection, potential loss of vehicle functionality without consent, and past cyber attacks. The industry's practice of sharing data with law enforcement under legal orders was noted, but the criteria for such sharing remain ambiguous for some. Markey's appeal to the FTC coincides with the FCC's increased scrutiny over connected car services. Data centers, essential yet often unobtrusive components of the digital infrastructure, face growing scrutiny over their appearance and integration into local communities. Author Dan Swinhoe has taken a closer look at this issue on the Data Center Dynamics website. As these facilities proliferate, there's increasing pressure from local authorities and residents for developers to invest in aesthetic improvements to make these large, typically windowless structures more visually appealing and less of an eyesore. 
Efforts include adding glass facades, incorporating green living walls, and using vibrant murals to soften their imposing presence. Despite these aesthetic enhancements, security remains paramount, with developers balancing the need to make data centers less fortress-like while ensuring they meet stringent security standards. Innovations in design and security, such as utilizing environmental features for protection and employing smart technology, are helping to integrate these critical facilities more harmoniously into their surroundings. This shift not only addresses community concerns, but also reflects a broader trend toward branding and visibility in the industry, marking a departure from the traditionally stealthy presence of data centers. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Dominic Rizzo, founder and director of Open Titan and CEO at Zero Risk, we're discussing the first open source silicon project to reach commercial availability. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Dominic Rizzo, founder and director of Open Titan and CEO at Zero Risk. Our conversation centers on the first open source silicon project to reach commercial availability. We describe it as uh, either an open source uh, secure silicon platform or ecosystem, or as an open source silicon root of trust. But you know, the root of trust being just one application of the secure silicon design collateral, design verification collateral that we've put together under the kind of umbrella of the Open Titan uh, project. 
Well, take us through the history here. I mean, from from the initial idea to actually being able to ship product, what are some of the steps that you and your colleagues have gone through here? Oh, absolutely. So it actually starts way, way, way back uh, about a decade ago. Uh, in the first iteration, it was called the uh, Honest Machines Project. Uh, you know, and it takes time for these things to gestate. So fast forward about five years from that, so five years uh, previous to today, when I actually started it as uh, the Open Titan Project when I was uh, at Google. So uh, the goal there being that, you know, silicon security is kind of the, the best, kind of most foundational security, but it's hard. Uh, the implementations are inconsistent. So how do we sort of raise all boats across industry uh, in a way that's transparent and trustworthy and non-proprietary? Well, we do that with open source, right? Now, there's a challenge there. And that open source silicon has never really been uh, done before in a successful kind of commercially viable way. There's things like RISC-V, but that's an open source specification. There's never really been an implementation before. So some of the things we did, starting from very, 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 very early on, is one, we partnered very closely with a host organization, a nonprofit in the UK called Low Risk CIC. It's a spin out of the Cambridge Computer Lab. Uh, and that was to kind of give it a, a a neutral place where it could be gestated and grown and kind of bring everyone together in sort of a Silicon Commons environment. And then, you know, sort of philosophically, as we were laying out the principles of the project, we really relied on things like flexibility and quality. So flexibility in that it's all under a permissive Apache license, uh, just a very vanilla, very commercially friendly open source license. And then the quality aspects are things like the documentation, the design verification collateral, all in addition to the, the digital design itself, right? So that's really one of the things that sets Open Titan apart as a project is it's the full package. Uh, it's the full silicon package, which we've now taken forward, developed over these last five years with a lot of partners, you know, Google, Kaseki Endeavorian, Seagate, Western Digital, Revos, among many, many others, uh, including individual kind of independent contributors, and sort of pulled this together uh, with our partners at Winbond and Nuviton and turned it into a, a chip, a commercially available uh, chip that is you know, now shown to be working. It's now Silicon Proven IP and is moving into mass production towards the end of this year. And so what do you envision the use cases being for this chip? The kind of one of the, the core kind of initial ones is you can think of this as a platform root of trust, something that you can integrate into a system where it can serve as this kind of independent, below the operating system, uh, trustworthy, uh, secure enclave of sorts, right? And that's where someone like Zero Risk comes in to really uh, democratize access to make this available to, for example, you know, providers of critical infrastructure. Folks like that, right? But you can use this to really secure everything from uh, a, a, a commercial server designs to data center peripherals to laptops to you know even something as semi ubiquitous as, as like a, a second factor fob, a multi factor authentication device, right? So all of those things have security, or you want them to have security rooted all the way down in the silicon below any of the kind of very broad attack services that software or the operating system presents. 
So help me understand how this would be integrated into a, a broader system here. I mean, you mentioned it being kind of a secure enclave. Um, yeah, that's a term I'm familiar with from the way that Apple uses it. Uh, does it parallel that sort of use case? Uh, I would say that the way my understanding, obviously I don't know for sure, uh, is my understanding of the way Apple uses it, the, the kind of parlance around these things can be a little uh, squishy at times. Mm. Um, mm. I would, I would, I would tend to call this more of a secure enclave is actually not the worst term for it, but it's, it's actually probably closer to something like a secure element, which is a little bit, uh, smaller kind of, um, lower performance in a way of an environment, but one where you put like critical secrets, critical assets, um, things like that. Right. Whereas I think some of the ones where we talk about confidential compute and things like that, those tend to be more moderate to very high performance, secure, isolated execution environments. But again, those tend to rely on a much smaller uh, trusted compute base, much smaller attack surface, um, root of trust or a secure element style device like the Open Titan, where you store the kind of critical assets that then get leveraged up into that larger, more performant environment. So again, you know, forgive my uh, only slight you know, understanding of what goes on under the hood with a, a project like this. But obviously you have, you know, silicon, which is um, baked in and does not change. And then, you know, things like, um, you know, field programmable gate arrays, you know, which is another way to get something into hardware. Is the, the security element of this that it is immutable, that as it goes out into the field, I mean, that's, that's what you have. And so that's where the trust comes from? That's absolutely one aspect of it, right? I mean, the ability to hit reset or trigger a remote, re remote reset and get yourself back to a known good state is a really, really critical property. And the only way mm. to do that, the only way to do that with any sort of confidence is to root that in something immutable like the silicon itself, right? You can't do it at the firmware level because that can often be updated. And if that update mechanism is is bad, you start to see, you know, terrible, persistent, pernicious kind of uh, advanced persistent threats that just stay resident and possibly stay there quietly. You certainly can't do it at the operating system level. You know, there's this notion of, of sort of turtles all the way down. And really what you need to have is you need to have this kind of bottom turtle built out of rock solid silicon that you always know that it goes back to a known good state when you, when you choose to put it in that state. Can you share with us some some of what went into the decision making process here? I mean, I, I imagine uh, it must have been challenging to decide what gets put in and and what gets left out. Oh, that's absolutely right. And and again, that's where something like uh, the low risk foundation, where or that's not actually a foundation, but the low risk it's called a community interest uh, corporation, uh, where they come in is they actually support the the governance of an open source project where all the partners kind of come together and commit resources, be they financial or personnel, and sort of support the overall effort. And so there's a really well thought out governance structure um, where there's a project director, which is myself, and that project director proposes a yearly roadmap. That roadmap gets voted on by a steering committee, which is composed of representatives that are all paying into the kind of communal support kitty. And then you know, you start to have things like a technical committee where the people who are 
really the day-to-day experts doing a lot of the technical work are all evaluating proposals for what goes in and what goes out. And then from there, you have you know concentric rings of committers, people who can actually approve, who can review and approve code that goes in because it can't be unconstrained, right? And uh, that's a very actively monitored and pruned list to make sure that folks are really engaged in the project, that, that they have really uh, have the kind of background and, and the kind of uh, involvement necessary to make those decisions uh, wisely. And then, of course, there are all the uh, people who really do the work, you know, the, the contributors, right? So it's, it's kind of these it's concentric rings of governance that lead to, you know, one, a lot of discussion. So it does take longer. But by the time you conclude those discussions, you end up with, with a sort of much more broadly accepted and acceptable implementation that meets the needs of all the individual partners, whatever their specific uh, niche use cases might be. So for folks who want to find out more about Open Titan and, and the project itself, uh, what's the best way for them to find out more? Uh, I think the opentitan.org website is a great place to start. You know, also looking at some of the supporting companies and their involvement. Uh, you know, low risk obviously is the host organization. Folks like like my company, Zero Risk, were obviously uh, major contributors as well. And sort of seeing how these different organizations are both utilizing uh, Open Titan and kind of uh, any sort of you know, it, it, it's not the worst thing to read the read the press around it, right? Um, we've, we've really tried hard to. I just want to give a plug for your show. Uh, it's it's uh, we've tried really, really <laughs> kind of aligned with the goals of transparency and trustworthiness. We've really tried hard over the years to make this thing as accessible as as possible, right? Yeah, I mean that's the spirit of open source, right? That is absolutely the spirit of open source. I I would tend to call open source really. It's about conscious commoditization. It's about taking something that is broadly useful, broadly necessary, and really making it so that everyone can leverage it and benefit from a kind of a ubiquitous open implementation. And we hope we've done that with Open Titan. That's Dominic Rizzo, founder and director of Open Titan and CEO at Zero Risk. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And finally, the West Midlands Police found itself under the scrutiny of the UK's Information Commissioner's Office for mixing up the personal data of two individuals sharing the same name and birth date, violating the Data Protection Act of 2018. The errors, including sending officers to incorrect addresses and schools and sharing sensitive victim information with the wrong person, 
resulted from failure to distinguish between the data of crime victims and suspects, which seems like a pretty fundamental distinction to get right. The police force launched a new data quality policy, a think-before-you-link campaign, and compensated one of the affected individuals. The force has accepted the reprimand, implemented most of the recommendations, and continues to focus on data protection training and policy improvements. When I was a teenager back in the 80s, there was another Dave Bittner who attended the next high school over from mine. We would regularly get each other's phone calls. He was an avid golfer, and I was a theater kid, so I would field questions about his tea times, and he would get asked about rehearsal schedules. Each of us had the other's phone number memorized so we could help each other's friends connect with the right Dave Bittner. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Selena Larson from Proofpoint. We're discussing their research, Bumblebee Buzzes Back in Black. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Stokes. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producers are Jennifer Iben and Brandon Karp. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.